Welcome to First State Insights, offering information, perspectives, and analysis for public policy, management, and community and economic development in Delaware. Hi, everyone. Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the Institute for Public Administration. My name is Troy Mix, and I'm Associate Director at the Institute, which is a research and public service center in the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. Thanks for tuning in today. Today's episode is a special Freight Friday edition of First State Insights, brought to you through a partnership of IPA and the Delmarva Freight Working Group. On June 16, 2020, I spoke with Jeffrey Ziegler, who is a partner with Dermody Properties responsible for sourcing and executing the company's e-commerce and build-to-suit projects throughout the United States. In Delaware, Dermody is developing a new Amazon fulfillment center on the site of General Motors' former Boxwood Road plant. Jeff and I spoke about the status of that development, the basics of warehouses and distribution centers, and current and emerging trends in the logistics sector. Let's get to the conversation. So, Jeff, thanks a lot for joining me today. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Wanted you, if if you could start uh, telling us a little bit about Dermody Properties and what your role is there. Dermody Properties is a national uh, industrial owner and developer. So warehouses, distribution centers. We don't get into the manufacturing side, but we do have some tenants that have manufacturing operations in their facilities. For instance, Pratt Boxes. Most of the boxes that you get at Home Depot, those cardboard boxes, there are uh, tenant out on the West Coast. But we, we essentially are acquiring and developing warehouses around the country. My role is to oversee our national build-a-suit and e-commerce business. So when a company is looking to expand, we have corporate relationships with them. We'll work with them to locate sites and uh, and to handle the entitlements, pre-development, development, and then ultimately own the asset in one of our investment funds. So in this region, are, are there particular deals that you've been involved in that people would be aware of, could be aware of? Uh, there's a pretty small transaction on Boxwood Road that was announced uh, a couple weeks ago by the governor and, and Amazon. So How the, small? Uh, <laughs> uh, Dot told us it's the largest building in the history of Delaware from okay. the square footage side. Okay. We beat out actually University of Delaware, one of your campuses. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think we'll take it <laughs> for <yeah>. the team. <laughs> so from, from a gross floor, floor area, it's 3.8 million square feet. Um, it's the redevelopment of the form of the Wilmington assembly plant, the GM uh, plant. Uh, so GM went uh, bankrupt in 2009. And since then, there have been some other owners that uh, first tried to do a car, continue the auto manufacturing and assembly at the plant, and then um, redevelop it for warehouse distribution. Uh, we acquired a portion of the property at the end of 19 and the remainder at the beginning of 2020 from the, from the previous owner who had handled the demolition of the prior building down to the uh, building slabs. So was your role to you know, work with a client to find a site or you've got the site and then work to find a client who would take it over? It's a mixture. Because with Dermody, we have our own equity. Uh, so we are out there actively looking for sites to develop, ones that we believe are going to be attractive to users. 
So the Boxwood site, we were under contract to acquire. And then one of our corporate customers was looking for an operation in the, say, the Delaware, Northern Maryland, South Jersey, basically the Philadelphia region. And uh, we had this asset put in in front of them. And our original plan was to do three to four buildings on the site, total gross floor area of um, a little over 3 million square feet. If you were to look at the cubic volume, uh, that was going to be approximately 180 uh, million square feet. You take the, the or sorry, not 180, uh, 135,000 square feet. So 45 multiplied by the three. This one was a single asset, but it's taking up the entire site. Because uh, you've seen the site plans that are out in the public. We uh, have a lot of car parking and trailer parking, which is something that's needed by uh, by this customer. So before we get too into the weeds about the site and Amazon's needs, maybe you could give us uh, a little overview of kind of really elementary what warehouses are, what distribution centers are, what fulfillment centers are in just a, just a couple of minutes. Like what are the different sites that people are looking for? What roles are they playing uh, in their strategies? Sure. So there are um, you know, the warehouses with distribution centers, fulfillment centers, there's flex space. The industrial real estate is divided into different, different nomenclature for what the building's called. But at the end of the day, what it is is a building that's storing product for either distribution to the final customer or distribution to, to a business. And you have tenants that are, that are distributors themselves. You have tenants like uh, grocery distribution companies that they may actually own the own their own warehouses, and Home Depot has their own warehouses where they either own or lease them. But it's going to to replenish their uh, their stock. And Home Depot is another example where they have a couple different prototypes based upon what the material is inside the building. They have ones that are called rapid deployment. They have uh, um, lumber. They have building products. All these different types of buildings. But at the end of the day, a warehouse is a warehouse. It's storing product for distribution. And where you get to these, these names that people have come up with, some of them are the customers, some of them are just academics like yourself. A fulfillment center mm-hmm. is fulfilling the needs of the customer. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, Walmart is historically, and Walmart's a great example. They historically were selling stuff by the pallet. You know, they would order boxes of diapers. And they'd come to their distribution center, they'd break it, and each Walmart supermarket, super center, whichever one it is, would get a pallet of, of diapers. But uh, consumers, unless if they're running uh, a nursery, typically aren't buying a pallet of diapers at the time. I know we typically buy them in a box sometimes. And Walmart had to reconfigure their operations to have the customer fulfillment next to the warehouse distribution, where they would be fulfilling orders uh, to individual customers of the boxes. They'd go and pull the, uh, the, a pallet of diapers out of the distribution center that was going to go to a store and bring it over to their fulfillment center to break it down, to turn break bulk, to break from pallet into individual orders. And the, you know, so fulfillment centers are typically uh, utilized when it's going from a uh, from the warehouse to, directly to the customer. 
And so in the business you're in, uh, you know, you cer- certainly are concerned with what these different clients need, but are the space considerations, they can be drastically different, you know, depending on if it's fulfillment, distribution, et cetera. Correct. Um, so also the type of product that they're distributing. So someone who's a, a paint or I mean, paper uh, distributor, that's a heavy, bulky product. Um, whereby back to the diapers example, you can put racks and you can rack that higher. Uh, the dirty secret in real industrial real estate is people pay rent on the ground floor. They don't pay on a cubic floor. Um, so they were pretty customers are looking for uh, warehouses that are, that allow them to operate in the business the most efficiently. Um, and for cheapest product. So, where warehouses 10, 15 years ago may have had a 28 foot clear height or a 24 foot clear height. And that's from the, from the slab to the first, uh, member that would, that would prevent something from going higher. It's simply the sprinkler or the steel. So they could stack pallets up to 24 foot clear with racks. Well, when we took them to 36 foot clear, now you're getting 50% more storage in the building, but you're still paying rent on that ground floor. So your efficiency is going up. You look at some of the more modern buildings, there are clear height buildings with people that are building spec 40. And then there's users that have specific needs for even higher. Uh, if you've driven up I-83 on the, on the west side of I-83 in New York, you'll see this building called ES3. That's an automated grocery distribution facility that's 100 foot clear inside. Mm. So that 3.8 million square feet, you said it's its biggest in Delaware uh, in history. Um, how does that compare with uh, other developments that we've seen in the region, like thinking Lehigh Valley or other places that might have kind of seen distribution warehouse development before, uh, before Delaware? So that 3.8 million square feet is the ground plus a couple floors inside, um, whereby typical buildings that we would spec would have ground 36 foot clear and that would be at the top. Okay. Um, so from that cubic volume standpoint, it's all made up within, uh, within racking, whereby in this facility, there's a higher clear height from the, from the ground to the top floor, but there's individual floors in there that, that are specific to uh, tenants operations. Okay. And that's kind of a, a standard size of, of new facilities of that type. Would you say that are going up in the region or nationally? Yeah, you have uh, customers that are demanding a million square feet. You have some customers that there's two million square foot buildings that are going for them. For spec, yeah. typically when you're building a spec building, you're going to want to attract as many different types of tenants. Um, so when we're doing a spec development, we'll look to be able to divide it at least, depending upon the size, at least into two or four tenants. Mm-hmm. So whether it's putting a demising wall going the long way or the short way, we in theory could have two different types of configurations. There's a cross dock configuration where you have loading docks on both sides and there's a rear load or a front load configuration where you're, it's a single load. Uh, there's loading on only one side. And there is a sweet spot that, um, that the designers came up with that from your loading dock to the, the last pallet that you're storing, you want that to be about 300 to 350 uh, feet long. After that, it's less effective. So thank you for that intro and, and tour of the, the warehouse world. I remember 
best thing I remember is a warehouse is a warehouse <laughs> that will keep me during dark days, I think. So, uh, in terms of Amazon and the Boxwood site, what is it that, first of all, made sense to Dermody about the Boxwood site, but then how does this fit in Amazon's plans as you understand them? So Dermody's, op- Dermody's interest in this site was its location. Um, its location first from a distribution. And you're smack dab in the middle of, of Washington, Washington to Philly to New York. Um, it's a very good location. It was a big site from standpoint of from that attractiveness. Originally, we had the 2 million square foot buildings, which we were able to reconfigure for this specific tenant. Um, but if not, those buildings would allow us to attract different types of tenants. It had rail. It's right, right, it's right off 141, which is right off of 295, 495, 95. You have labor. I mean, labor is something that a lot of tenants are starting to look at. Where, because warehouses historically, you'd have a million square foot building that would have 50 or so employees in there. You'd have a manager, a couple other uh, uh, managerial staff, and then you'd have a bunch of people that are on forklifts taking those pallets and loading them into trucks and, 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 um, take and unloading trucks. Well, now as people have gone from the pallet to the individual product, you need more employees. And, you know, there have been some articles talking about, well, robots are coming in and that's going to limit, um, the amount of employment. It could not be further from the truth. My experience has been that with robotics, the robots are doing the job that humans are inefficient with. For instance, in some facilities, if you were to Google the Kiva robotic system, you'll see that the robots are going underneath the, underneath the, the racks of product, which uh, you and I, unless it we're under eight inches tall, we can't do that. So they're able to efficiently go under and pick that rack and bring it to someone. Well, ultimately, the person needs to do the picking or the stowing. So as these robots are come in, the buildings are more efficient. You need more human people and more people for human capital. So Germany was really attracted to the site from the standpoint of its location, its labor. It had all the utilities, which is another thing. I mean, when you're going to some greenfield sites, it can take six months, a year to get power, water, and sewer extended to the site. And with that, with that ambiguity and uncertainty, tenants don't really look at it until you can give them a date certain. A uh, company is not going to want to sign a lease if they don't think they're going to be able to get in when they need to be. Um, so there was a lot of clarity there. Uh, and then ultimately, Amazon's very public about their expansion, they, especially with the recent COVID-19. Their volume has has gone up considerably as people have stayed home and Amazon's f- fulfilled the, the gap in uh, the ability to effectively deliver essential goods to people's houses in a relatively um, short time frame and with efficiency and certainty. So the location to them now is, uh, and this is all speculation, but probably the same reasons that we looked at it is labor and location and the ability to, uh, to deliver product to uh, their customers in a relatively short time frame. So thinking about um, that kind of greenfield element that you mentioned versus uh, a site that's kind of ready to go, uh, certainly having sites ready to go is one thing regions and communities might do if they're interested in this type of development. I'm curious what challenges you run into in dealing with particular communities when it comes to things like uh, transportation planning or 
zoning considerations or even just having the right sites? Are those things that you run into uh, that are big challenges? Yeah. And I mean, I'm across the country. So I've done stuff in Miami, Maryland, New Jersey, Connecticut, Wisconsin, Chicago, LA. I mean, all the major markets, Seattle. So fortunately or unfortunately, I've had exposure to great municipalities, great governmental authorities and oversight agencies, and then the not so great. There was a, uh, a, a, a county that uh, I was trying to get in front of the fire marshal. He went to return my call and I'm, I'm in New York. He's a, he's a flight away. He called me at nine o'clock in the morning and said, well, I'll meet you at one o'clock today. I had to get on a plane for three hours to get there. We met, you know, the, that's just, there's not that collaborative approach. One of the things that you know, I'll scream it from the rafters if needed, you know, we met with Delaware, uh, with Newcastle County, and then with, uh, with the state. And they understood the project that we were looking to do, and they were collaborative. They were a partner on this transaction. And you don't have that in every municipality. We kind of said, this is what we're looking to do. And you know, can we get there? And there was a resounding yes uh, from from everyone, from Denrec, from Deldot, from the Fire Marshal's office, the Newcastle County, and that you know that that comes from from Governor Carney's office. You can clearly see that people are are looking to bring jobs and to redevelop this site. And since being there, I mean, we're looking for other opportunities in in Delaware, Newcastle County, and even further south. And this site in particular was a redevelopment opportunity, which, you know, Delaware is in a congested Northeast corridor. What kind of trends have you seen in terms of redevelopment uh, for warehouse purposes going from, say, manufacturing to warehousing nationally, but maybe in that region? Has that been predominant? Depending upon where it is, um, there, you know, there are manufacturing and warehouses on the uh, shores of Brooklyn in New York and the Bronx where those have been converted into higher, they'll call it higher and better use, residential office, because people don't have to necessarily be warehousing there. They've all gone to New Jersey. They've, the, the supply chain has evolved. However, it's funny that a lot of those sites now are coming back and now there are warehouses going back to where there were beforehand. As it relates to redevelopment, I mean, this is a brownfield site. This, is, this was a dirty site. Not anything particular with GM, but just the way the business was done in the 1940s. You have these sites that have historic contamination. Uh, you can't build residential on top of it. You don't want kids playing on it or eating the dirt or really having too much exposure to it. So the best way to prevent that is to put uh, a warehouse, which is concrete and asphalt on top of it. Then you can't have exposure. And that's where industrial is 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 great industrial warehouse and distribution centers because it's uh, there's nothing sexy about our product. It's concrete walls and a rubber roof and a concrete floor, but it prevents the uh, exposure to contamination that may be there for forever. Yeah. So thinking about, um, you know, where distribution logistics industry stands right now and moving forward, one thing, uh, there, there's COVID. <laughs> How, what kind of impacts have you seen kind of in the short run or what kind of trends do you think this might exacerbate in the distribution and warehouse space? So right when we'll say the U.S. was shutting down, we saw a rush in short-term lease 
demand. Uh, the Williams-Sonoma is all these retailers that had product on shipping on ships coming across the Pacific or the Atlantic to the U.S. that when it arrived, they were going to be offloaded. And if they don't take them from the port, they start paying considerable storage fees there. So there was this short-term, this, this need for short-term leases. Uh, we worked with some of our customers to allow them into our existing facilities, or in some cases, just park the trailer at one of our buildings. We're not charging your rent. Figure out what you need. I mean, that's in times like this, you need to have a collaborate, a collaborative approach. Um, and you hope that in the end, the customer remembers that when they were in a bind, you helped them out and you didn't charge them for it. Um, so there was that. Then there was a, a lull. And then you started seeing some of the distri- distributors related to medical products and also some of the businesses that were where, where growth was, was growing or their demand on their product was growing exponentially looking for expansion. I do think there's going to be a monumental switch in how distribution occurs and, and, and so the supply chain specifically. And, and I learned about this and went to undergrad about just in time uh, approach, the Kaizen model. There's all these different supply chain models where you don't want your capital tied up in inventory for a long period of time. So I always use the toilet paper example where you want that the roll of 10,000 pound roll of paper coming from the mill the day before you're making that roll of toilet paper. And you want to be making that toilet paper a day before the customer is ordering it. And then once you make it, you want to be able to get it to them as quick as possible for the lowest cost. With the just-in-time, that method, everyone was doing that. So the mill was making that paper the day before you placed the order. And when there was the surge in toilet paper for everyone was hoarding, hoarding it at home, there was no circuit breaker. There was no portion of the supply chain that had additional stock to, if, if not prevent, to reduce the downward pressure. Um, and what you saw was lack of toilet paper in supermarkets and everywhere and, t- and paper towels. And with that, though, some of the manufacturers have stopped making that scratchy stuff that you see in the office buildings and have switched over to more of the consumer fluffy stuff. And there's back demand. I know that there's, you know, I don't think there's any issues I've seen getting toilet paper anymore. So there's, with that though, to have that circuit breaker, you're going to need more storage somewhere, whether it's storing the roll of, uh, the roll from the mill or store, or storing the product ready for, uh, for distribution to the, uh, vendor or to the customer. So I do think there's going to be a bigger demand on that. There's also going to be a bigger demand on the, on getting it to, to the customer. If people aren't willing to go to the supermarket, someone's going to have to get it to them. And UPS and FedEx and the Postal Service, DHL and, and Amazon, they're, they're focusing on that. Then you have these niche players like Lasership is another group that, you know, they, they handle and aggregate, uh, packages from multiple e-commerce companies and do the distribution. So, there's going to have to be a bigger sorting operation and then a bigger, we'll call it the last mile uh, operation of getting it from that sortation center to the house. And how does, um, you know, I guess we're currently in a recession until we're told we're not in a recession, but uh, how does, you know, this industry look in recession and recovery? 
Does that exacerbate some of those other trends you just talked about? Or are there other things that come into play in the space, do you think? You know, in our, so in the capital market side of our business, uh, we are the golden goose of real estate right now. You look at malls, office, multifamily, student housing, they're all not doing well. People aren't paying rent. People are vacating. People aren't building uh, new uh, commercial properties right now. Industrial, everyone wants to be in our, in our niche because in an office, you may have a tenant who needs $25, $30 of tenant improvement allowances to build out their space where typically in our business, we're talking dollars. And you make that back within a year, roughly a year of rent, depending upon the scope. So it's not a capital intensive business. And there's more demand in acquiring our product now. Um, from, a, from a recession standpoint, I don't know if I agree with that we're in a recession yet. I can tell you that, uh, at least in the state of Delaware, we did not shut down our job site. Uh, the governor's office was, uh, he's part of the, the league of the Northeast governors and, and he took a very pragmatic approach, which is, you know, especially the construction industry where when we're erecting steel, there better not be someone within six feet of each other when we're erecting a 20 foot beam. Cause if they are, they're in the wrong place. Um, so just by the way, where we are in the construction phase, you can meet those guidelines. We instituted some pretty strict, uh, when you come on site, your temperature is taken. Um, questions are answered. You have to answer some questions related to who you've been around. And um, then masks and gloves and, and additional porta potties and whatnot for the project. So we're doing our best to prevent Delaware from going into a recession and, um, and keeping the, the engine going. Across the country, though, we are seeing uh, demand come back from industrial, from tenants, whether they're mom and pops uh, or they're big uh, Fortune 50 conglomerates. We have product in Vegas, where Vegas has probably been the worst hit from a standpoint of they went from full casinos and conventions to nothing, almost instantaneous. And we're seeing our customers there starting to open up, starting to supply uh, the casinos back and, 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 and the, and the, the retail side of things. Yeah, of course, we're recording this in a day when I guess retail sales went up about 18% since last month. So, <laughs> you know, we're certainly speeding up. Uh, and I know we, we talked about traffic still being down, but it's, it's, it's closer to normal than it was just a couple of weeks ago. So trending in the right direction for sure. Jeff, I really want to thank you for, for joining today and, and providing a nice overview for listeners about, you know, your work in Delaware and the region and really nationwide. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. As a reminder to listeners, this Freight Friday edition of First State Insights was recorded on June 16th, 2020. To learn more about Dermody Properties, visit Dermody.com. For more information on the Delmarva Freight Working Group and its programming, visit wilmapco.org slash delmarva. That's all we have for this episode. I'm Troy Mix from the University of Delaware, IPA. To learn more about IPA, you can visit us at bidenschool.udel.edu slash IPA. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you'll join us again soon for more First State Insights.